Now let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Titus. We're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. We're going to knock out another whole chapter today. By the grace of God. Always feels good to me that I can do that. I titled this morning's message, The Good Works of a Believer. And looking back at chapter 1, in verses uh, 10 to 14, uh, we read a little bit about what Paul's reasoning was for writing this letter to Titus. He's instructing Titus for these churches that had begun on this island of Crete that there were things that needed to be set in order and that they needed to actually appoint elders within these particular fellowships that were in the various cities around the island of Crete. But like in any church or in any uh, area of the world, there are things that even culturally and things that are there that are challenges to the church. There's people that have gotten saved in those climates, those societies, those places where there is a lot of ungodliness, kind of like in America today, that people come to know Christ. And there's a lot of things of our past that need to be set away and to be set right once again. But look what Paul says to Titus. He says in verse 10, he says, For there are many insubordinate. And they're both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision which is a term used for the Jews and even some Jews that had come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, but they were still working off of an old system. They subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not, doing this for dishonest gain, we're told. Cretans, in verse 12, it says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, this testimony is true, Paul says. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. It's obvious from what Paul is writing here that there were some issues that needed to be dealt with within the church. It's important for us to know really what the culture was, what the problems were in the city and on the, on, the, on the island of Crete, for us to get an understanding of why Paul is writing like he is. I read of another Greek historian. His name is Polybius. He lived from 208 to 125 BC. This island of Crete had a lot of history. And there were a number of historians that wrote about the people of Crete. Listen to what he wrote. He says, Money was so highly valued among them that its possession is not only thought to be necessary, but in the highest degree, credible. And in fact, greed and avarice are so native to the soil in Crete that they are the only people in the world among whom no stigma attaches to any sort of gain whatever. Cretans, by their ingrained avarice, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars. 
I will now address myself to showing that the Cretan constitution deserves neither praise nor imitation. Now with few exceptions, you could find no habits prevailing in private life more steeped in treachery than those in Crete, and no public policy more inequitable. Not a very good reputation. Not a city that we would probably say, that's the place I'd like to live. And and here, but God doesn't place His churches in just all the nice places, does He? He puts them in places where there's a need. He puts them in places where people need to hear the Gospel. Because our God is a God of redemption. He wants to change lives. He wants to change the condition of our lives in the church. We don't come to this place where we got it all together. We come to this place expecting that God is going to do a work in my heart, change me from the inside out, that I would have an impact on this city around me. That's what Paul desired for the churches there in Crete. But because of the conditions within Crete, it affects the church. There were temptations and and the, the Cretans that got saved that were in the church They're struggling with past issues. You know how that is, don't you? Past issues, remember what you were before, and some of that baggage that we sometimes want to carry along, and sometimes those things even come within the church. God wants to deal with those things in us. Last Sunday, in chapter 2, I titled the message, The Qualities of a Sound Church. We talked about the older men with the younger men and the older women with the younger women and the young men. And we talked about discipleship and the need for discipleship within the body of Christ, that these things would change within us. And there's a good way to disciple that older men with younger men, older women with younger women, teaching them the things that God has taught you. Look at how chapter two finished. I'm always excited when I see a a section like this end on grace. Verse 11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has has appeared to who? To all men. God's grace. It's teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Looking for the blessed hope. Here's another grace of God. Looking for the the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself His own special people. And these special people, that they would be zealous for good works. That's a good question for all of us this morning. Are you zealous for good works? Speak these things, Paul says to Titus. Exhort, rebuke with all authority, and let no one despise you, Titus. That's how we finished chapter 2 last week. Remember, I shared also last week that good works are key words in this letter to Titus. It's why I titled it what I did this morning. 
And it's important for us to know that good works, that they should be characteristic of every child of God. It's not kind of if we want to have good works. Good works do follow real salvation. Good works do come out of a true child of God. Good works, what are they? What are good works? What kind of works does God accept? What kind of works does He reject? We'll see that this morning. But simply put, good works is love in action. Love in action. Paul, he commended the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 1 when he wrote this. He says, remembering without ceasing, he's speaking to the Christians that are in the church there at Thessalonica. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and your patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. He's commending them for the report that he got back of what God was doing in the church there. This work of faith or this faith that works. This labor of love or this love that labors. This patience of hope or this hope that is patiently waiting, enduring, even in persecution. He's commending them for their good works. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 14, that we're to be zealous for good works. You know, the the word zealous there, you know what that means? It, It actually means to be a zealot. You know who the zealots were? To be a zealot for good works. Or to burn inside with a zeal for good works. We can ask ourselves that question this morning. Are we burning inside to want to please God with good deeds and good works. We also see in our text in chapter 3, verse 8, that we're to be careful to maintain good works as Christians. In other words, we need to be careful, we need to be thoughtful, we need to give attention to good works. In chapter 3, verse 14, we're also instructed here to learn to maintain good works. Or that we should be careful to maintain, it means to also to give attention to, to, to learn to maintain good works. So if he's talking about learning to maintain good works, that means that we need to learn something. Learning something means that I need to grow in it. And so we grow in good works, don't we? We should be able to say, I'm actually doing more good deeds, more loving kindness, more acts of kindness, and and, and doing greater works than I did six months ago, a year ago, five years ago. We should be growing in these things as Christians. Look at your Bibles now at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul starts with these words, remind them. He says, remind them, Titus, remind these Cretan believers that are in the church there to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, in light of what I just read about that historian about what Crete was like, the atmosphere 
the culture, the people, the bad testimony that many of them had. Remind them, Titus, to be subject to rulers and authority. Remind them to obey, Titus, to be ready for what? For every good work. To speak evil of no one. To be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Apparently, the the Cretans, they needed to hear this. They needed to learn this. And, And most important, they needed to be reminded of this. You see, we need to be reminded often, don't we? Of a lot of things. Every worship song that we sang today, do you know what every lyric that we sang today, that every bit of that was a reminder to you and I of God's faithfulness and who He is. Every line that you sang was a reminder to you. And you've sang that song before. Oh, it's a fresh reminder of His faithfulness faithfulness to me today. You see, our witness to the world is important. It's not just being a Christian inside the walls, it's being a Christian outside the walls. It's being a witness outside of this building that really is the test of really where we're at. You see, when we come together in this place, we probably have a different aura to us than maybe what we're like when we're outside of this place. It shouldn't be that way, but quite often it is. Why would the Cretans need to be continually reminded of these things. Why is Paul telling Titus to remind them? It's because they've known it before. And they need to be reminded of it again. And it's the same way that we need to be reminded as Christians of things time and time again. It's because we forget. We lose sight of why we're really here and what we're really about. That Christ is coming back and there's, you know, we need to make good use of the days that we're living in. Because when all this is said and done, there won't be any church in heaven. The church will be in heaven, but we won't be doing church in heaven. We're going to be the whole body of Christ there in the presence of the Lord. It's our witness to the world that's important. We're all walking testimonies of our Lord. A changed life. Hopefully that the world looks at it and says, I want to be like you. I, I love just your spirit about you. I love, you know, what I, don't, I can't even put it into words, but there's something about you that's different. And I'm drawn to it. If somebody ever says that to you, that's probably the best compliment you could ever get. Especially in a workplace. You're not in church. We read last week in 2.5, that the Word of God may not be blasphemed. When he was talking about that discipleship, he's talking about the women with the younger women, that the Word of God wouldn't be blasphemed. You see, as we grow in Christ, you know, it gives less and less reason for this world to find a reason to accuse you or to accuse your God. Oh, I don't want to be one of you. You know, you're, you're no different than me. And, and, and you know what? That Bible, you know what I mean? But when you're a living testimony of God's Word, People want that. They see that you're different. You're not just a churchgoer. You're somebody that's living out your faith. You're being a witness. Your conduct is different. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, how many of you are in Christ this morning? Raise your hand. If you're in Christ, you know Him as Lord and Savior. If anyone is in Christ, He's a new creation. Old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That sounds like it's a promise. It sounds like that's what it should be. That the old things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. We're a different person. We have a different reason to get out of bed every day. This is what I'm about. I'm a Christian. I know the Lord. He saved me. Listen to this quote. What version of the Bible do your neighbors see in your life? Is it a living version? Or is it a distorted version? Great quote. Something to think about. What do people see in us? You know, we, we, we can go out and preach the Bible. We can say a lot of words. But does our life line up with what we say? We're living in a culture, a Christian culture in America today, that has a lot of symbolism. You know, the day and age of graphics and media. You know, we've got the best of the best in this nation when it comes to that. We've got media. We've got t-shirts, you know, with all the, the stuff on it. We've got the what would Jesus do bracelets that we can put on and crosses around the neck. And, you know, we've got bumper stickers. And by the way, we've got some bumper stickers on the back table. First time we put one out. Bumper stickers on the back table for Calvary Chapel Fellowship. But let me do a little disclaimer with bumper stickers. Some of us might be what we might call an impatient driver. We might take it a little bit further and call it road rage, but hopefully not. But if you're of that sort, and you would consider yourself probably not the best example on the road, then I would say don't put one of the stickers on your back bumper. Don't put it back there. But this is what I'd say. Pray and ask the Lord to change your habits. And then that sticker that you have in your car, one day you'll go, I think it's time. I'm going to put that sticker on the bumper now. Now I'm ready. We won't do it perfectly. I'll, I'll confess to that. I have my times where you know, get off my tail. But we have to, as Christians, say, God, help me not to be a bad example of you. It's been said that a large part of any pastor's public ministry is reminding people of what they already know. I get up here week after week, and you know, I've heard that before. I've heard that ten times. I've read that book before. I've been through that book I don't know how many times. But it's because we need reminders of things that we already know. I need it too. Just always keep in mind, I have to sit before the book to prepare to teach you. So what you're hearing, I've already heard. Remember that chapter 1 was about conduct of elders. Chapter 2 and 3 of this letter is about conduct within the church. 
Paul says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authority. To be subject to rulers and authority, why would we want to be that way as Christians? Because we're changed people. Because we're not like the world that resists authority. We see a lot of that going on, don't we, in the world right now. And they don't, they don't like the police. They don't like, man, they're resisting authority. Don't be like those that would resist authorities and rulers. Peter spoke of it in 1 Peter 2.13. He says, therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man. And, and he tells us why. He says, for the Lord's sake. That's why we would do it. Whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who were sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who would do good. And then he tells us this. He says, for this is the will of God. He tells us it's the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bond servants of God. Remember, a bondservant is a slave by choice. I choose and have chosen to follow Christ as a bondservant, a slave by choice. I, I, I count it as a badge of honor to say that I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. It's not a bad thing. He also tells them to remind them to obey, to be obedient, which means to submit. And, and more specifically, to obey civil authorities. That, I believe, was a problem there on the island of Crete for most people. Remember what the Greek historian said. Cretans, by their engraved variants, are engaged in countless public and private seditions, murders, and civil wars quite the island to live on. Paul says in Titus chapter 1, he says, the church needs to obey. Excuse me, in verse 1, he says, the church needs to obey and it needs to be ready for every good work. It needs to be ready for every good deed that we would do. You see, opportunities for deeds, they often come out of nowhere, don't they? Have you ever seized an opportunity to do a good work? To, go, to do a good deed unto someone? To make an example for the Lord out in the world? A lot of times they come out of nowhere. And you're putting a decision place of what you're going to do. You're going to do an act of kindness. You're going to do a good deed. Are you going to do something to honor the Lord? And we either miss out on those opportunities or we seize the moment. We look for the opportunities. And we seize those opportunities. Sometimes it's the simplest thing. You're walking by somebody and they're loading their car. Like, Can I help you with that? And then it leads into a discussion of sharing your faith. Let God use us. Let us be filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, that's key to it. We need to be filled with God's Holy Spirit. His Spirit comes and lives inside of you when you're saved. But we need to be filled, overflowing with God's Holy Spirit. 
We need to stay close to the Lord in prayer and fellowship with the Lord, abiding in Him and saying, God, I need Your Spirit today. I need You to fill me. I need You to go before me. I need to walk in Your Spirit today. I need to be led of Your Holy Spirit today. Lord, would You give me an opportunity today to show something to somebody else about who You are, to to do an act of kindness. So as we walk, as we get up every day, as we make that our prayer, as we're looking for opportunities to show acts of love and kindness in this world, I believe God will do it. You'll get up every day and you'll, you'll, you'll just be looking for it. And God will be honored with it. And God will receive that kind of work. You're not doing it because you're getting saved by it. You're doing it because you want to honor the Lord and what He's called us to do. Remind them to speak evil of no one. Be peaceable. Be a person who has his mouth under control. Any of us have that issue? I think all of us probably at times have that issue. To have our mouth under control. To be a peacemaker. To bring peace into a situation. That's really a a fruit of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Did you know that the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you in its fullness? That the nine fruits that are listed there in Galatians, they're in you in fullness? Why don't we always see it just pouring out of us, you know, and everyone just being drawn to us because the fruit of the Spirit is just flowering out of our life. Why don't we see that all the time? We got flesh. We got flesh that we have to die to. That the Holy Spirit might work through us. That it might become evident to those around us. And not only that, but you need to remind them to be gentle. You need to remind them to be meek. And meekness is strength under control. It's it's mixed with humility. And it's another fruit of the Spirit of God that lives in us. Showing all humility. And look what it says, to all men our witness to the world around us. Showing humility to all men. Remember in 2.11, we read, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to who? Look at your Bible. To all men. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. You see, that's the Lord's business. Salvation. People getting saved. People coming to know. You know what I mean? Because when that last person accepts Christ that only He knows, we're going home. We're going to be with the Lord. That's all that's the delay. You know, God's not slack concerning His promises. Some men count slackness. He's long-suffering towards men. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of our Lord. He says that I want that to be your heart. I want that to, to be your mindset. This salvation has appeared to all men. These Cretans that had this bad testimony, this, this past. You know, we all have a past, don't we? Some of us don't even like to think about it. 
those BC days, what we were before Christ. And for many of us, it was a pretty ugly life. A bad testimony could be changed around by Jesus Christ. There was hope for the island of Crete by just having Christians there in these churches that could take a whole island and turn it around for Christ to take this community around our church and beyond to turn it around for Christ requires people, God's people, God's people living it and being an example and a testimony. I shared last week that getting Christ inside of us is easy. It's getting the world out of us that's hard. Paul goes on in verse 3. He says... He tells him, remember what you were like before Christ. It's a good thing for us to do sometimes is to remember what we were and what we are now. It gives you a little bit of hope, doesn't it? You kind of go, you know what? And then I have grown and I'm not what I used to be. I got a lot of rough edges and a lot still more that God's working on, but I'm not what I used to be. Praise to God for that. Look at verse 3, for we ourselves were also once foolish. Notice it, once, past tense, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another, days before Christ. Hopefully not like that now, but definitely, as he says, we were once this way. I shared this last Wednesday. We're going through the book of Isaiah on Wednesday night. I spent some time talking about remembering things in our Christian walk. That remembering is actually an essential part of our Christian walk. Did you know that? Just to remember is an essential part. Notice how Paul includes himself in this verse 3. He says, we ourselves also once. We formally. We at some time in the past were foolish. We were unwise. We were without understanding. We were driven by evil desires and lusts. We were once living in malice and envy. And we were hateful and hating one another. It was all of us. He said, man, my life wasn't that bad. That's, in a sense, we were all in that way. We were all in that same sinking ship. But the life of a child of God is one that no longer needs to be that way. That should be an amen in our heart. Amen. I'm not the same. That's the part we need to remember. I'm different. I'm not who I was. God has redeemed me. He's started the work in me. He's not going to be done with me until the day of Jesus Christ. What He starts, He finishes. He's going to make perfect what He started. Because He does everything perfect. And that's our life as a Christian. Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 1, he says, And you, 
speaking to you that are here this morning and to me, he made alive. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins, in which you once, underline that word in your mind anyway, or if you're in Ephesians chapter 2, underline the word once. You once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, a name for Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. That's what we were among whom also we once, here it is again, we conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then we come to this verse 4 that is probably one of the most glorious verses in the Bible. But God. There's something to underline, highlight. But God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Wow. That's why we're changed. That's what we were. This is what we are now. But God. That's all we have to say. That's all you have to underline. But God. He did it. Paul wrote in Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, But now, there's the underline, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Colossians 1.21 And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, there's wicked works, these are ones that God does not accept, yet now, there's the underline, yet now He is reconciled. Colossians 3.7 in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, in verse 8, but now you yourselves are, are to put off these things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. But now. Colossians 3.7, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them, but now... You yourselves put off. I already read that. I'll read it to you again. Put it off. I heard that already. Philemon 1.11 Who once was unprofitable to you. Talking about that slave owner with Onesimus. Who was once unprofitable to you, Philemon, but but now is profitable to you and to me. That's just a picture of our changed life. Right there in Philemon. 1 Peter 2.10 Who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. I love those buts in the Bible. They mean so much. It's what changes the course. Changes the direction of what it was and what it is now. And those are the things that we need to be reminded of. We need to remember where we came from and what we are now. Paul says to Titus and to the church in verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Now look at verse 4. Look at your Bibles, verse 4. 
There's the word, but. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, or in other words, when God revealed Himself to you, when God drew you out, when God spoke into your heart, when God unveiled your eyes, when you came to that place in your life where you now understood that there was a God that loved you, that wanted to forgive you. He goes on to say that it's not by works, it's not by deeds of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by His grace, we shall become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There's two words in there that scream in these, page, in these verses. His mercy and His grace. It's why any one of us are sitting here today forgiven. Why any one of us could have any hope of any future with God. His mercy and His grace has been poured out upon you. Mercy. Not getting what you deserve. What do we deserve? What Jesus got on the cross. What did we deserve? Hell. What did we deserve? To be separated from God for eternity. His mercy. Grace. Getting something that we don't have. A gift. God gives us salvation as a gift. We don't earn it. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but it's according to His mercy that He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. God needs to do a new work in the heart of a man or a woman. He needs to change them from the inside out. It's why you are a new creation in Christ. He takes your dead spirit and He makes you alive by His Holy Spirit. You become regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. The triune Godhead. God the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes and makes residence in your body. And because of that, He will raise your body up. He'll give you eternal life. He'll forgive you of your sin. We need to be regenerated. We need to be washed by God's Word. Having been justified. Having been made right in the eyes of God by His grace. That we should be heirs. Don't you like that? Don't you like the thought of being heir of God? Some of you have become a recipient of an heir here on earth. We had that. You know, and sometimes you get, you know, we get some of these things passed down from somebody that you love and they pass it down and, and then it's all gone. It's all spent and gone and the inheritance is gone. And, you know, and some of those things that were given, they, they, they start rotting away and getting all rusty. It's all corruptible. But you know what? What we have in heaven is incorruptible. What we are going to receive in our... It goes on for eternity. What we have in Christ far exceeds anything that you will ever receive in this life. And it's only by His mercy. It's only by His grace. It's not because we deserve it. It's because He loves you and gave His life for you. 
Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Did you know that faith in itself didn't save you? Faith is simply the vehicle which God chose to use in our lives to bring us into a relationship with Jesus Christ. What saved you? The only thing that saved you was the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross for your sins. Faith is a gift that God gives to you so that you can place a simple faith and trust in the Gospel of Jesus Christ and become a child of God. And that in itself is a gift of God. It's not of works. Don't ever frustrate God by thinking that you can please Him or make Him more happy with you by your efforts and your works. It tells us in the book of Galatians, do not frustrate the grace of God. For if your righteousness came by the law or by your good deeds or by your works, then Jesus Christ died needlessly. He died for nothing. And anytime we insert something in there in front of grace and say that I'm helping God out in this whole thing, you've got it wrong. It's by His mercy and grace that any of us are saved. Lest anyone should be able to boast. There won't be any braggarts in heaven. No one said, look what what I did for the Lord. All of that goes out the door. It's all what He did. We're going to throw our crowns down at His feet. We are His workmanship. We're God's poema. We're His workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's the difference. We don't do good works to be saved, but we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, this is what Christians should do. Through the washing of regeneration, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Simply put, we need to be born again. You've got to be reborn from God's Holy Spirit. Born twice. We all came through the birth canal, and now we have to be born again spiritually. Why do we need to be born again spiritually? Because of the result of the fall of Adam. Death and sin passed upon all mankind, and for that all have sinned. We're all in the same sinking boat until the day you said yes to Christ. And when we ask Christ to forgive, we repent and we turn to Christ. He comes in by His Holy Spirit and He takes your dead spirit and He makes it alive by His Holy Spirit and you become born again by the Holy Spirit of God. He told Nicodemus, that religious leader that night, that ruler, we're told, of the Jews, He said, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will never see, nor will you ever enter into the kingdom of God. You'll never see it, nor will you enter into it. And Nicodemus was confused over that. He said, what do you mean? How how am I going to be born and enter into my mother's womb a second time and be born? He was confused over what Jesus was even saying to them. You must be born again, Nicodemus. He says, Nicodemus, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Nicodemus, you must be born again. He says, you see how the wind blows through the trees over there? You don't see the wind, but you see the effects of it. How it's blowing through the leaves, moving the branches. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
It's not something that knocks you off your feet. It's not some feeling. It's, not a, it's by faith that we trust that when you repent and ask Christ, He comes inside of you and you become born again by the Holy Spirit of God. Romans 8 tells us that that same Spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, if that same Spirit dwells and lives inside of you, He will give life to your body by His Spirit that dwells in you. So important, so necessary. As a matter of fact, without it, you will never see nor will you ever enter in to the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter how religious you are. It doesn't matter how many good works you do. You'll never see or enter the kingdom of God. Verse 8, back in our text. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and they're profitable to men. What things is he talking about? The things that he's talking about is really the conduct of the church. The conduct of our lives in front of a world. That we would be careful to maintain good works. Why? So that we'll be a witness. These things are good and they're profitable for men. It's our witness. Inside the church, outside the church, we need to be a witness for Christ. Verse 9. We see Paul now telling Titus, there's other things that you need to avoid within the church. Look what he says. Verse 9. But avoid. Uh, That word avoid means turn your back. Or turn around. Or avoid the conversation there in the church. That those conversations that create foolish disputes. You ever been in one of those? Ever seen one of those happen within the church? A foolish dispute? genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law. For what, what does he say about them? For they are all unprofitable and they're useless. There's a lot of things you can talk about and debate about. and talk, and Some of them are right on, some of them are not. But people get into these things. And Paul's saying, for the sake of, of causing foolish disputes, walk away from those situations. No, I'm not getting into that one. It's not edifying. It's not doing anything. You know, some people just love it, don't they? They love that kind of stuff. Foolish disputes. It's interesting that this word foolish disputes is, is actually moronic controversies. Moronic controversies. What word do you think we might get from that? Moron. Moron. And, and it's, it's conversations that are stupid or moronic. It, it, don't do it. It, it. it divides. It doesn't edify. It's describing a person, in a sense, who lacks a good sense of judgment. And good judgment. He, he's just, he just likes the whole thing of getting into different kinds of disputes. Don't do it. Genealogies. The Jews and their genealogies. 
They love to get into the history, their past, and looking back. And there's, in, the, in that in itself, there's nothing wrong with that. But they were attaching were, uh, names to, uh, to their search, dates and places. And they, they were actually creating different hidden meanings within their genealogies. And they were bringing those things in the church. And it, and it, was, it was bringing these confusing teachings to the body of Christ. These genealogies are unprofitable and they're useless. 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul said it to Timothy, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies, he calls them, which cause disputes rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Contentions or strife within the body of Christ. And again, people, some people like that. They, they, they like a good argument. They like to get into And you know what contentions are? It's really self-centeredness. That's all it is. About self. They love to bicker. They love to battle. They love to talk about all these things. Controversial things. It's, it's really a, it's an expression of enmity. You know, you're actually creating you know, somebody that not want to be around you. Strivings about the law. Disputes means to fight. And, and, and striving here is, is people that want to get into, sometimes we might call it legalism. Taking people down a road of, and really, I believe, is motivated by pride. Legalism. Using the law and using certain demands that are put upon people. They put them upon people. It's not God doing that. It's not Him. It's not the Holy. It's them putting it upon people. Strivings and disputes about the law. Hebrews 7.18 says this, For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness. He's talking about the law. Because of its weaknesses and its unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. Get this. The law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope. That's what the new Christian, new covenant Christian, through which we draw near to God. That's what we want. Not all the, the law and the legalism, the, the, this and that. God will change that in people. Paul says that all of these things, they're unprofitable and they're useless. They're of no purpose. They're of no benefit within the body of Christ. Paul went on, and I'm going to have to move ahead. Paul went on, and he says in verse 10, something of a little bit stronger of a language. Church is not easy, is it? I mean, there's a lot that goes on in church. Why? Well, there's, a, there's people here. You know, as I said, if we just get rid of all the people, if I could just pastor a church with no people, and I'd have the best time. I'd get up, man, I'd just be in here preaching to the walls, and it'd be, it'd be fun. It's just when you add flesh into the mix, right? 
And there's a lot of things that go on and it's not for the faint hearted to do. But it's interesting that in verse 9, he talks about avoiding foolish disputes. And in verse 10, now he's saying reject a divisive man. Now, a divisive man is really by definition a heretic. We get our word heresy. And it means to choose or to side with somebody. It's division. And some people like to do that with their, their doctrines and their different kinds of things. They might want to come into the church and, and, and they create these things that are divisive. And they're, and they're really looking for the people that will get on their side. I know the pastor teaches this, but you know. But you know, have you ever looked at this? You know, and, and, and getting people into your camp, so to speak. Getting them on, you know, Paul says, reject a divisive man. Why? Because it's harmful to the body of Christ. And then he gives some instruction what to do with that. After the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is, here's some harsh language, is warped and sinning and being self-condemned. Such a person. And after the first and second admonition, really what Paul is telling Titus if you warn them once, you warn them twice, then you might have to say, you know what? You might find a church that'll meet your need in a, in a better way than here. There was a guy back at our home church in California some years back. He just came to my mind when I was thinking of all of this. And he came to the church and he was one of these people that and I hope, well, maybe we have some here. He was a King James only kind of guy. King James only, meaning that if you're using any other translation of the Bible, uh, well, you can look into that and you can see how that, that battle rages on. But here's the problem. He would come to church and he would sit and then he would beeline it to the pastor at the door after the service to make a point to him that what you shared today was good, but you're not teaching from the King James, the authorized King James. Now, I teach from the new King James. That was not sufficient. It had to be the old King James and that only. Now, after doing this for a few times, we had people that would come up to him and talk with him and try to be gracious with him, try to steer him in the right way and try to give, you know... And okay, and then he'd come back and do the same thing again. And then after we talked to him a few times, we finally made the decision, you know, I think one of us just needs to let him know that he needs to find a King James only church and go find it and get plugged into it and serve there. Just give your all, just, just leave. <laughs> and he did. But what's interesting is he came back about six, eight months later again. He tried it again. What is it within somebody that would even, let's just give him the benefit of the doubt. Let's say he's right. Let's say that is the only translation that God even accepts. Let's say he's right. God would still not want him to bring him, and just to create this, because sometimes people just think they're doing God a service. I'm doing something for the Lord, man. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let them know, man. It's King James only. Probably people are going to listen to this. This gets on Facebook Live. and 
other people are going, yeah, now we know where he stands. Verse 12, when I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. And that wasn't because he was on vacation. That was simply, you just don't travel in the wintertime. You don't jump into boats and run around the Mediterranean Sea in the winter. You find a place, you stay there through winter, and then we start back up again come springtime. But I'm going to send either Artemis or Tychicus to you. Either one of them. These are co-workers. These are probably people that maybe even Titus knew. When they arrive and when one of them comes to you, they'll relieve you, Titus, of your duties. And I want you, Titus, to come to me to Nicopolis and I want you to be there with me. And tell us why. And then I'm also sending Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste. Or he tells them to send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste that they may lack nothing. And basically he's just saying of these two men that were probably the ones that were delivering this letter of Titus to Titus. As soon as they come and deliver the letter... Make sure that all of their needs, whatever they need, take care of them, but let them go. Just send them on their way. they got business to tend to. Very practical, isn't it? I'm glad they add those things in there, those little tidbits at the end of the book. It makes us see that this was, you know, real life going on, real things going on like in our life. Verse 14 and 15, and we'll close. And let our people also learn to maintain good works. To meet urgent needs. That they may not be unfruitful. Not be unfruitful. To maintain good works. That we would consider each one of us this morning... God, would you use me in a greater way than you've ever used me before? Use me at work. Use me with my neighbors. Use me with my family members. Use me at church. Let me be a blessing and a testimony of who you are. It's all to the glory of God. It's not to parade our works. And so that he would receive glory. That people would be drawn to him. Verse 15. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Three chapters. A short letter. But so much in it. It's how... It's what we look to to know what to do in church. First and Second Timothy and Titus. God teaches what, what church should be like. Father, I thank You for this letter to Titus. Lord, as a pastor, I, I, I look at these three letters that we've gone through, and, and Lord, they're, they're so meaningful to me. And I pray that they were meaningful to your church body. 
Lord, that we would be a church that would heed these things, that we would, the things that we have been reminded of, that we would be reminded again and that we would practice the things that you're teaching us. That not only would our life be a changing life, but our church would be a changing church. And Lord, that would you use Calvary Chapel Fellowship, would you use these believers in here to go out this week and to be a testimony of your mercy and grace in somebody's life. We love you, we thank you, and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.